everyone. Welcome to Bringing Virtual Care Home. My name's Tina Nall, and I'm the Chief Clinical Officer at Anelto. Today, my guests are Allison Greenberg, the co-founder at Ruth Health, Denise Pines, the executive producer for Birthing Justice, a full-length documentary film, and Spira Lada, the founder of Luna Joy. And today, we're going to be talking about the maternal mortality crisis in the United States. Um, it's important to know, if you haven't heard, that uh, today it is more dangerous than 30 years ago to give birth. Uh, in the United States, and 92% of the lives that could have been, or that uh, we lost in the birthing process could have been saved. And so these leaders uh, in this field are going to tell you a little bit about themselves uh, and the companies that they, or or, uh, interests they represent, and then we're going to open a dialogue about this uh, very scary crisis in the United States. So can we start with you, Allison? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Tina, and and really excited to be here alongside Denise and Cipra. Um, I'm co-founder and CEO of Ruth Health, and we are a virtual care clinic for prenatal and postpartum patients. Uh, We provide life-affirming and, in some cases, life-saving services from doulas that you can text message 24-7 to pelvic floor training, C-section recovery, lactation support, um, and even self-guided video series for everything from sex and pregnancy, um, intimacy, to baby wearing and breastfeeding 101. Um, so really excited to be here. We were a member of the summer 21 Y Combinator cohort. Sipra uh, is my fellow YC founder. Um, we also were uh, part of the United Healthcare Accelerator. And today we serve patients direct to consumer as well as B2B through employers and partners um, like BabyList. Wow, that's wonderful. Okay, uh, Denise, can you introduce yourself and, and your interest? Uh, sure. So I'm Denise Pines. I am the co-founder and CEO of Women in the Room Productions, and we produce the recent film Birthing Justice that just aired on PBS. Um, my interest as a filmmaker is to really um, uplift stories um, by telling first what causes particular problems with people but also showing what best practices are, right? So finding those pockets of solutions that really are having positive outcomes across the country. So whenever I do films, I'm always traveling the country to show those, you know, sort of sweet spots and they can be anywhere. It could be in a rural area to the urban area to a suburb, Um, but we'll find it and we'll show it, right? Because I think a lot of times when we talk about crisis, we don't provide people with like, well, how do we solve that, right? So I try to provide like, let's talk about the crisis, but let's find the solutions and then make you feel like you can do something about that. Wow, that's wonderful. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Um, Cipra, can we have you introduce yourself? So I'm Cipra Lada. I am um, a physician by training, reproductive psychiatrist, as well as CEO and co-founder of Luna Joy Health. Luna Joy Health is also a Y Combinator-backed company. We were in their 22 cohort. Um, We are a digital mental health clinic for women across the lifespan, focusing on vulnerable life transitions, such as pregnancy and postpartum. And so we do D2C, where women come in and get full-stack mental health services, including medication management, psychotherapy, coaching, peer support, uh, covered by insurance to make it accessible and via telehealth, so it's truly accessible from home, um, as well as behavioral health integration to OBs, so working to get directly plugged into health systems, OB offices where women are already at and meet them where they need to be met for care. Um, Most importantly though, I'm the mom of four. I have a set of twins and two singletons afterwards. Um, And like a postpartum anxiety survivor Mm -hmm. myself after my twins. And so in addition to kind of taking care of this population, intimately seeing thousands of patients myself and now through the company, have gone through the process uh, myself and really firsthand saw the holes in our current system. 
Well, that is wonderful. So, so obviously we've got thought leaders in this area. And so first, if we could talk a little bit about your perspective, about the role that mental health uh, plays in maternal care. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think the field of mental health right now in pregnancy, postpartum, perinatal care uh, has been largely overlooked for so many years. And it's actually quite quite an exciting time for me right now in that things that we've been seeing clinically with patients on the ground, um, which is 85% of women don't get the mental health care services that they need or want. And it is the number one leading preventable cause of maternal morbidity and mortality is finally starting to not only come to light, thank you to the CDC, as well as insurance companies and, you know, other stakeholders in the ecosystem gathering this data and recognizing that not only is it the right thing to do to take care of women's mental health, but there is um, an economic case behind it. There is a future health case behind it. And uh, yeah, so a, a lot of holes, a lot of things I think to be really sad about when we kind of look at our current ecosystem and, and all that's happened in the last 50 years, um, but also a lot of excitement that right now we have data, knowledge, and, and a lot of power to make some significant changes moving forward. Hmm. Allison, do you want to add to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really exciting to hear Sipra kind of tell her story and the story of, of Luna Joy because we actively partner with Luna Joy at Ruth Health. We refer patients um, uh, to Sipra's team because we don't provide mental health services at Ruth Health. We're nationwide. We are accessible and affordable, especially compared to our peers. Um, but what we do is more think about physical health during and after pregnancy and focus on the intersections between mental and physical health. So as everybody knows, your mind and your body are intimately connected. And when we talk about that four out of every five pregnancy related deaths being preventable, um, you know, I think we scan over these statistics, but you have to pause with the gravity of that. Four out of every five maternal deaths are preventable. And we know that in New York City, where I live, it is nine times more likely that a Black non-Hispanic mother is going to die in and around childbirth than a white woman like myself. Um, you know, those are stats that you cannot sit with and let pass you by when you work in the birthing space. And so I think probably all of us are motivated by thinking about prevention and addressing these issues head on. For us at Ruth Health, it is really a focus on referring out when we can, when it comes to those mental health conditions, whether it's anxiety, depression, substance use disorders, or even suicide. But physical health plays an, an extremely important role. And so those mental health conditions can stem from bodily issues. They can stem from body image issues, body dysmorphia. They can stem from intimate partner violence. Um, they can even stem from issues around incontinence and pelvic floor dysfunction to, you know, breastfeeding issues postpartum. There's an incredible amount of shame that comes with the, the process of breastfeeding and choosing between breastfeeding and formula or both. So, yeah, that's what we really try to address with our uh, Ask a Doula, which is a, a program that's text message based. It's extremely accessible for our patients across the country. We even are trying to pilot it with some um, American Indian populations. I'm actually here in New Mexico because I'm working with an amazing traditional midwife from the Navajo tribe. So, you know, accessibility is the key for us. And doulas are one of the most incredible worker birth workers at the intersection, again, of mental and physical health. They are evidence-based providers. They are hands-off. They're not clinical, but they provide reductions in C-section, preterm birth, preeclampsia. And we know that beyond mental health issues, those are some of the other leading causes of maternal death, right? bleeding, hemorrhage, preeclampsia, cardiac conditions. So um, that's that's kind of our take, but we are not the mental health experts. We just try to remind our patients that their mental and physical health are inextricably linked. Wow, thank you. So Denise, through your uh, research for the documentary and the findings that you uh, included in it, can you give us a perspective on uh, mental health as a, as a cause to this mortality crisis? You know, I, mental health is, you know, all part of the spectrum of the delivery of care, right? So if I don't have access to health care, 
um, then I'm not going to have access to dealing with, you know, sort of the afterbirth that happens in postpartum. So I don't have delivery of care in my prenatal years. I'm not going to get that in my after years. And, you know, if the culture around you says, just suck it up, right, you know, just do it, then there's no one even you feel like you can share with the feelings that you're having. So sometimes, you know, it's all part of our culture, definitely people of color to just, you know, grind through whatever those feelings are and that you feel like you're the only isolated one. I think a lot of times we have this belief that we're the only one. I do a lot of work with um, menopause in the menopause space. I'm really actually really huge in the menopause space. And part of what happens to women is this sort of the same thing, shame, embarrassment, this, this sense of isolation. Um, and that's all false, right? And so this, the same thing happens. And we don't, we have not studied, we have not put the research dollars to women's health that we really need to. Women are such complex human species. The way our body is designed to actually carry another human being inside of it and to do it more than one time, right? We think of the back in the years, women having 12 to 14 children, which was on average. Um, and we don't respect what actually happens to that woman in the fluctuation of those hormones, right? We don't have an appreciation for that. Then say, ah, I understand postpartum because here's what's happening. Here's the recalibration that her hormones are going through to come back into a balanced state, right? And so whatever state the environment she's in, whatever her home state in, if that means that you know she's alone taking care of her, her newborn because her family lives away, um, and that's a new experience if that's the first baby. Um, if she has, she's a working mom, which means she has the pressure of having to go back to work in a very short period of time, there's stress around the adjustment. I mean, so there's so many things we're not recognizing about women's health um, that I think we need to start advocating. We need to start advocating for our government to one, have a women's health department, right? Just a women's health department and a funding of research around these things that we consistently find that are inadequate in women's health. Why do women still have PMS? That's ridiculous, right? Why do women have endometriosis? We don't even study this. Why do women have postpartum? Let's understand what happens to her hormone structure that's happening and, and recalibrating after she's delivering a baby on top of the stress that she just went through of delivering that child, right? I read something that a woman who is pregnant, it is like she has run a, a marathon. It's like her body in that time frame is like running a, a consistent marathon. And when I heard that, I just thought like, wow. You know, and if what I was to tell you like, hey, I just did a marathon, you're just all like, oh my God, you know, this must be going on with you. But we never think about that with a woman ever. Like what she just, it's like sort of an expectation. Yeah, it's an expectation. This is what our body has the ability to do, but let's respect that, right? Denise, I just want to jump off of something that you said, which really struck me. Um, we, we do need government bodies looking at this. We need research dollars. There's a huge gap in our data. I, and that's higher level, I think even lower level, changing the culture around what I call normalization of suffering for women um, is really important because when we normalize suffering, we don't ask, we assume. Um, if we don't ask, we don't measure, we don't have data, we don't do. Um, and so even making like down to the nitty gritty conversations between women and their healthcare providers, needing to cover a certain set of things, we don't ask women how they're feeling, we're going to we're not gonna know how they're feeling. We don't ask them about tears if we don't ask them about pelvic floor dysfunction. If we're not measuring for it, if we're not screening for it, we are not gonna be able to act. And so I love everything that you said. And it just, it this idea that suffering is just normal for women, I think is probably the biggest injustice that kind of keeps all of this underfunded, under-researched, under-looked at. Absolutely, yeah. And Tina, if you, uh, this is such good, this is just so many important talking points. I have to add that what Denise and Sipper are saying is 
a symptom of, of a larger problem. And, you know, I may be a little bit radical in putting these terms around it, but it's because we live in a patriarchal and in many ways heteronormative society. And when men are the norm, literally the norm, women were only included in clinical trials starting in 1993. That was after I was born. So it's embarrassing and it's scary that this country not only uh, marginalizes women, it normalizes their pain and suffering by failing to have data on it. So to, to Cipra's point, we have to measure what matters. We cannot make changes until we understand the problem holistically. But more importantly, our you know directives in terms of building in the space or messaging in the space, as Denise is doing, is to remind the American public that women are the chief medical officers of their families. And not only are they struggling to make ends meet, put food on the table, keep their jobs in a recession, um, fight for equal pay, they are making most of the medical decisions for the other folks under their roof, and they are taking their own needs last. Um, so I think that is what all of us are fighting for, is for women to see that they can put themselves first, and especially during pregnancy and postpartum. If they don't, the consequences are grave. Yeah, yeah, as the statistics are showing us. And it, it makes me think about how often in our um, zest to um, earn our place at the at the table kind of thing, we um, perpetuate the suck it up buttercup kind of uh, mentality that, um, and I think this is what Denise was talking about, um, culturally, if it's a just bury it and, and move on kind of thing, it will eventually bite us. And, and obviously, we've got a lot of this going on. So um, it, it's a it's a conundrum between uh, showing our strength and, um, and admitting our, our innate weaknesses and, and having real solutions to solve for those kinds of things. So um, at this time, Denise, can you tell us a little bit about the key findings that we're going to see in the documentary uh, Birthing Justice? And in particular, I am so interested in what kind of solutions um, you've discovered in that process that can be replicated so that we can all start to invest in uh, making that, turning those stats around. Sure. I mean, so Birthing justice, you know, really shines a light on a really complex issue. I mean, I wish this was a film where we said, this is the answer, right? So there's no one answer because we're encompassing racism, right? We're encompassing the way the medical system is, is simply designed. The lack of resources to keep hospitals and OBGYNs working, um, the interaction of human beings with each other. So you know, the easy answers, you know, that we sort of found was doulas. We've talked about that just more recently. Um, midwives, um, particularly nurse midwives that can work inside hospitals. You know, 92% of women deliver their babies in the hospital, um, not outside a hospital, but in a hospital. We have to really focus on that. Over 40% of women who, do, who have babies delivered in a hospital setting are on Medicaid. Um, so we need to rec look at what Medicaid isn't covering, right? Um, in terms of those, deliver those, de those deliveries. Um, so, you know, this crisis, unfortunately, when we look at that we have, you know, numbers that reflect 30 years ago, when we have the kind of technological advances that we see in society today, it just does not match up. And so part of the film, kind of, you know, goes through that um, in terms of talking about doulas, talking about midwives, talking about like, what does a hospital need to do from a CEO who runs a hospital, who has received numerous excellence award in their maternal care, so people can have an example. We talk with medical students, right, who are, are, are dealing with their own um, biases, and what the responsibility it is on themselves to address their bias as they deal with the communities that they end up serving in a health environment. It's very important. The hierarchy between 
uh, a resident and the lead doctor, right? And when disagreements, uh, we talk about that actually in the film. You usually never hear about that. You got to be like, you're an MD, so you know what I'm talking about. That is really something that doesn't get discussed publicly, um, how that hierarchy really works and patients suffer as a result of that. Um, we talk about fathers and the importance of father presence um, with their children. Throughout this film, you will see um, dads and the presence of dads. A lot of times what I have seen with women, I've seen this even in my own family with relatives, is that early in the process, we you know, move men away from interacting with us and interacting with their early infant as if they're going to break that child. And that begins their de detachment um, from, from them. So we show in this film programs that work with dads and with their children to be engaged. Um, so there's a lot of stuff we talk about, you know, why is there not a pipeline of black doctors to serve black women and black people in general? Um, what happened? So we talk about the historical context, something called the Flexner Report that came out in the 1920s. There were at one point 11 black medical schools around the country. And when the Reflectional Report came out, it ended up closing and leaving only two of those schools remaining. And to today, those two, two schools remain, and there's only two additional schools <laughs> since the 1920s. Um, so we try to really cover, you know, lots of issues in this film. And most importantly, we wanted to talk about joy, right? That there is justice and there is joy, right? That having a baby is a joyful experience for anyone. And we believe that every woman deserves, you know, a beautiful birth story, and that was the, the impetus for this film. So this film is not a doom and gloom film. You watch this film, you're going to laugh, um, you're going you're to cry. Um, and we ended really in joy, in complete joy, which is the, you know, the babies being born, um, the parents and experiencing that joyful baby in their hands, um, you know, families together. So that sort of encompasses what this film is about. Well, thank you. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention is you talked about the shortage of black uh, physicians um, was the stat that I uh, learned of uh, black infants die at a two to three times the rate of white uh, babies. And um, when black babies are delivered by black doctors, their mortality rate is cut in half. So that shortage is extremely critical to, again, trying to reverse some of this uh, mortality that we're seeing in this natural process uh, that should be joyful. And, um, and so there are things that can be done to, to create a, a difference. So, so we, we know just as stat and in terms of the success rate, we have to ask ourselves, what creates the success rate, right? What creates the success rate? The success rate is created because culturally, I understand some of your stressors in your life, that I'm listening to you, that because I work with you in a, as a population, I actually understand your higher risk points. So I'm taking that into consideration. Um, I'm not putting judgment on you about how you have shown up today. So I'm not, if you're overweight, I'm not focused on you being overweight. I may know that you live in this particular community and there's no vegetables there, right? Um, so I think that that is what um, that stat is revealing that we're not also talking about why is the outcomes more successful. I'm sure in the Latino community, you will find that same level of success, right? And what Denise is talking about was so underscored for me personally, um, just last Friday. So I got to travel to Boston and I went to the sixth annual Black Maternal Health Conference hosted by Tufts Medical School. And I mean, powerhouse room, some of the most brilliant leaders in Black maternal health um, and in intersectional maternal health. But 
there were groups of legends speaking on the stage at this conference, including, um, she's often called Mama Michelle Drew. She is a nurse midwife. She's an MPH and a DMP. She's an advocate of basically tearing it down and rebuilding it for us by us. And so, you know, as, as a white woman who's trying to build accessible options for every community, I was incredibly inspired by the words she spoke. You know, not only is she a midwife, she's a 10th generation midwife. And when you look at the history of midwifery and the history of women's health, what Denise said was true. In 1923, this is actually something that, that Michelle Drew shared with us and that stuck in my brain. In 1923, there were 100,000 midwives in this country. 90,000 of them were Black. And the maternal mortality rate, the data we have from 1923 may not be super clear, but what we do know from the data collected is the maternal mortality rate was two to one, black to white. We are now looking at seven or nine to one, depending on where you are in this country. So when people ask me, what is the, what do we do? What, what is the action we take um, as a country, as a city? As a, as a group of women's healthcare um, advocates, it is clear as day. You just have to look back to look forward and increasing the pipeline and creating actually really educational reform, um, creating subsidies and incentives for more Black women and Black people to go into healthcare and specifically to become certified nurse midwives or certified professional midwives, CPMs. It's that's one big thing that you can do um, that our legislators must do um, and that our medical schools must take under their own wing, because as Denise pointed out, medical schools are the seat of so much bias in healthcare. They need to normalize recruitment in predominantly black communities. They need to recruit from HBCUs and they need to ensure that there is equity, racial and gender equity in their classes from, you know, physicians all the way to nurses and nurse midwives and even in, in doula training programs. That to me is one of the simplest, it's not simple, but it's the clearest way to address this systemic problem. As we in this country um, grapple with the lack of providers um, and that that um, stat is growing, um, do you think there'll be greater acceptance for nurse midwives and, and doulas than we've seen historically? When, when I uh, was in clinically in OB uh, as a part of my career, they, they were not readily accepted. And, and I think that at that point in time, we weren't thinking in terms of the shortages that we would face in the future. But um, what are your thoughts on that? So I could talk to that just from a regulatory, you know, I'm the media press president of the Medical Board of California, and I sit on the Federation of All State Medical Boards. Um, so there is a very significant problem in the country uh, with regards to physicians. Um, physicians have aged, um, so a lot of them are about to retire. We don't have a pipeline coming in to replace them. Those that are coming up um, find that, you know, um, they uh, kind of reflect, you know, the general young people society um, that I want some time off, right? I, I'm not all in and I'm not going to keep being a doctor straight through. If I'm, if I'm a, a woman, I might want to take two or three years off. Um, if I'm a physician, I may have some money to be able to do that. So we are looking at how do we adjust from a regulatory standpoint, adjust to that kind of change. So one of the things that is happening is, yes, we are seeing the increase of um, nurse practitioners. Um, being able to have some of the decision-making power that physicians have. We are seeing physician assistants getting some of the decision-making power that physicians have because in fact, we do have a shortage. So we are going to see an increase in um, non-physician-like positions serving at physician-like levels. We are going to see that because we, we have to, right? Um, and we've created a society that has become reliant on physician care. We have left how to take care of ourselves, right? We've left how to move our bodies 
um, in ways that helps our body actually function, to put the kind of food in our mouths that come from the earth that helps our immune system and protects us during things like COVID. Um, and so the further that we have moved as a whole collective group, the more reliant we are on physicians, but the less that we have to actually serve the population that is coming, that's coming up through this um, sort of kind of environment. Yeah, kind of feels like a vicious cycle yeah. uh, going on. Yeah. Um, so yes, add to that too, um, being a physician and kind of understanding the physician experience in the last, you know, 10 to 12 years since I've been practicing too is that um, I, I do think there's a reliance on physicians. And I also think that there is this um, magical like equation that's happened where people are asking physicians to do more with less constantly. Um, and so if you look at, you know, reimbursement from health insurance and what health insurance will pay for a 10 minute visit or a 12 minute visit or an 18 minute visit, and you look at the increasing rising costs of healthcare, even when salaries tend to stay um, stagnant is that we've created this situation where we are placing kind of the burdens of the entire healthcare system on what a physician is supposed to do in the minutes they have with the patient. Um, and so quite frankly, lots of physicians are tired of that. They, they can't perform under that pressure. And um, in 2022, between 2021 to 2022, we had over 100,000 primary care physicians quit, just leave their jobs and move on. And if you think about the time that it takes to become a physician with four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, anywhere from three to seven years of residency where you're getting paid, sometimes minimum wage, uh, you know, depending on the number of hours you're working, for a physician to actually just up and leave medicine after all of that, I think is a pretty powerful statement at how difficult the work environment has really become. And so, yes, I agree. I think that there is going to be much more um, non-physician care that's being delivered. And I also think that uh, that you know, our our ecosystem, our healthcare ecosystem and the care that patients get is going to be directly influenced by what payers decide and put place value on um, and how they continue to evolve over the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. Yeah, I, I wish more people could embrace the concept of physician extenders that that um, allow for other uh, healthcare professionals to have validity in in helping patients with uh, conditions being overseen by uh, physicians. So, yeah. Um, so, from your individual perspectives, what progress do you think we're making um, in this uh, lane of uh, positively impacting uh, maternal mortality? Well, Tina, I actually have to shout out my my hometown of New York City because I think New York City has become a beacon in many ways in maternal health. We often look to California, which has some of the best birthing outcomes, some of the best hospitals, excellent subsidies, even for doula care. But New York City is starting to pull its weight. And thanks to Mayor Eric Adams, there is now a pool of tens of millions of dollars in his Women's Health Initiative that will be doled out to healthcare providers, health tech companies like ours at Ruth Health, um, and that will be allocated through Health and Human Services. Our deputy mayor, uh, Ann Williams-Isom, is, is a brilliant, brilliant woman who is really driving the charge for change. And so what's happening in New York City, I think, and I hope because I'm an optimist, will spread to other cities across the country. Um, and, and Mayor Adams actually called a summit of New York City women's health um, providers, executives, startups like mine, uh, we gathered at the beginning of this month and it was incredibly intersectional. It was everything from private sector to public sector to CBOs, community-based organizations, to even filmmakers like Denise and storytellers who are, are part of this charge. All of us have to work together. And I think what's been most exciting for me is that the pandemic was a reality check and it made people beyond our sphere. Obviously all of us see the problems every single day. Um, 
we can start to focus on joy and on justice when we have outside entities coming in and working with us. And so to see New York City begin their doula initiative and subsidize doulas for women on Medicaid, um, to see folks working together. Like I'm now having conversations with hospitals and healthcare systems in my backyard in the Bronx, which is one of the most hard hit boroughs in New York. It is it is in many ways the most underserved population. It is a predominantly minority, majority minority um, area. We're starting to work together. And I think that's actually the only way that change can come it's by having, you know, uh, an entity like Luna Joy, where I can refer patients to Cipra's team and she can refer patients to us. Um, it's having documentaries like Birthing Justice and Aftershock and having people like Kimberly Seals Allers, who is not just a writer and an advocate, but somebody who developed an app where we can rate providers, where black and brown women can rate their providers on earth. Um, it, these are all innovations that came about in the last five years. And so while the maternal mortality rate is the worst it's probably ever been in this country, I think people are finally paying attention. And so when the mayor of New York City pays attention, the governor of New York State pays attention. When the governor of New York State is focused on maternal health outcomes, you better believe that President Biden is also taking stock. Um, and then this starts to extend to maternal health postpartum, which, you know, People think postpartum is a set time period. Postpartum is the rest of your life. So seeing even states in the U.S. that are mandating universal pre-K, that's a maternal health measure. And when we think, again, intersectionally, diversely, um, interdisciplinarily about maternal health, that's when things change. That's when needles move. So, you know, I, I love what Denise said about focusing on joy. We see joy in our patients every day. We know that preventative care is actually on people's radar for the first time in history. Um, and I think that means that lives will be saved. And, and, you know, just a personal touch point that I love is that women are driving this charge. And if it isn't created by us, it won't exist for us. So government you know, government intervention, right? So we just had something last year that has completely impacted women's health in several, you know, you know, I don't know, 22, 23 states across the country, which was the Dobbs decision, right? So that one decision created all of these different legislative things across the country. So we need to understand the power and all of us need to um, understand how to use legislation in our work. So there is legislation. There's the Momnibus Act. If that act was to pass, there's 12 bills under that act. It will literally change lives in so many ways because it's addressing all of the issues, right? The issues of, um, you know, the, the failure of the medical system, the issue around racism, the issue around lack of housing, um, the issue around um, Medicaid, the issue of, and the and the coverage gap, the it just addressed so many issues that actually cause these poor outcomes. So legislation is really important. All of us need to be talking about passing that legislation in all of our work because it, we are not separated from how we actually need to get our work delivered. In in the way, in a context that can really happen. I'm happy that, you know, the um, New York mayor has, you know, put forth some dollars towards that. That's really important. I wanna see like that as a legislative law. I want to see a legislative law in the state of New York that has a fixed amount of money every year that goes to this, that everybody had to decide on so that it is not predicated on that particular mayor being there and when he's gone, then that goes away. So we need to understand how laws work. I deal with laws all the time and I understand how it works, right? Um, and we, all of us in this space, we need to understand that. And every time when we're talking, we need to talk about this is what's gonna change. Congress needs to sign the Momnibus Act, right? We need to constantly put that pressure on the people we serve, we need to educate them. I need you to write a letter to your congressperson, right? 
And when you get flooded like that, you start going, oh my God, these people, I mean, I talk to congressional people all the time. They'll go, yeah, you know, the people who squeak, the people are get. The people who squeak, the people who get, right? Um, and so that's what we have to do because then your work will be in budgets. Reef health would be part of, oh, we capture it under, you know, organizations that are serving. Oh yeah, we have allocated money for that, right? So we need to really understand that government legislative decision-making is so critical to the work that we're doing, or we'll always find ourselves on the fringe. I wanted to add to what both of you said. First of all, Allison, I love your sense of optimism. And Denise, I, I completely agree that legislation is first and foremost and needs to kind of keep its importance. I wanted to add to, and, and I agree that most of this work is being done by women. And I think my feeling about it, as I stated, I'm excited by all the things that are kind of coming together right now in order to make this work more um, impactful and effect and, and kind of going forward. But I've also maintained kind of a sense of impatience. And I think that we all need to maintain that sense of impatience, which is not going nearly fast enough. And I love that women are doing this work, but I actually feel like we really need to be putting it on our male counterparts to be doing this work as well. This is not a female problem. Um, this is a society problem. This is not you know, relegated to women to figure out how to deal with. And I think for us, I've seen that really across the board, even thinking about fundraising, um, fundraising from, you know, female backed funds versus traditional male VCs. Um, and we, we have wonderful investors on board. But as I did 110 pitches in two weeks to raise our first fund, uh, you know, this is the responsibility of everyone. It is not the responsibility of the female people who have dollars or who have a voice to go and say something. This is the responsibility of our male chief medical officers at companies, at insurance companies, um, in leadership. And so I, I think for me, I stated kind of like an optimism about the future, but also that there is an impatience there and that we need to not take this all on, on, you know, the three of us or six of us or the 12 of us or, or half the country, but this is everyone's responsibility. Um, and to keep on putting it on everyone's plate as their responsibility, whether it's venture dollars or making um, medical decisions in insurance company with coverage or in health systems, um, or even in individual UB practices and the way that medicine is run. So wanted to add that. And I love that we're talking about joy, because I think this is something that's, our company's name is Luna Joy, and literally where we got that from is Luna, the different phases of a woman's life and the different things that happen, which is constantly changing and shifting, and Joy, which is, you know, we look at all of the issues that we have, and there's so much pathology, and medicine is very pathology-driven. What's wrong? Let's try to fix it. What's wrong? Let's try to fix it. And we wanted a name that was really going to share the feeling that we want people to have when they think about having a baby in this country, which is not death and being ignored by your medical provider and having bad outcomes and being overlooked. We want people to feel joy. And so those are my smattering of thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Just, just to touch on a tactical point. I mean, Cipra, that was brilliant. And yeah, I think my optimism is always balanced by, you know, a couple times a week, just feeling like I want to give up. And I think that's actually something that needs to be said. The women in birth work and who, who work towards equity and maternal health and, and joy and maternal health, we are tired. Um, and, and the mothers that we are serving are tired. Um, birthing people have for too long been their own best advocate. So what I like to balance optimism with is holding men and allies accountable. And I think we see this across every spectrum, whether it's racial justice, you know, whether it's it's having my straight comes with with me, straight friends come with me on pride. And, you know, like knowing that LGBTQ rights really have to be fought for by everyone. Um, I am so heartened by seeing dads who speak up. I always think of Charles Johnson, who leads for Kira for Moms, and, and he is a leading voice in Black maternal health because his own wife had to go in childbirth. 
But, you know, on the more optimistic side, I actually think of our male investors. And so our cap table is about 50-50 men and women. But our lead investors at Giant Ventures are two brilliant men, John Deshotsky and Cameron McLean. And I wondered for about a year how on earth these men chose to invest in us, how they led a seed round, what made them believe in us. And it dawned on me one day while I was talking to Cameron he and John are both fathers of girls, but Cameron is one of, I believe, six children, the only boy. And so when we want male allies to step up, I think the best way to do it is remind them that they are the fathers of women, the sons of women, the brothers of women. And so anytime we're looking for allies, you know, we, we at Ruth Health are always looking for girl dads, men raised by strong women, men who have sisters, because that's how you personalize it. It may not seem to affect them. Of course, it affects, you know, straight men through their wives and partners, but it's got to come back to them. People are selfish. And at the end of the day, we women are fighting for women because it's selfish. And so getting men to recognize like their women in their lives are the reason to be allies. They're the reason to fight this fight with us. So yeah, Sipper couldn't agree more. It's not going to happen without men. Yeah, I totally agree. There's a, uh, in California, there are um, programs that are working on doing um, dad doulas, right? When we think of doulas, we think women, but we need dad doulas, right? We need to normalize dad doulas, even at our screenings that we've done. Like this week, we're doing 45 screenings of this film. It's unbelievable. Um, we have a lot of men that are in the audience, right? We're, there's more women in the audience, but we have a lot of men in the audience, um, a lot who come to support, a lot of men who, you know, when we're during the Q&A, want to know, what can I do? And we need to have solid answers for them, right? Because those men who are there are concerned and they want to do something. And we need to figure out ways that we can answer that, answer that question for them as to what they can do. They can, you could be a dad doula, right? You could be a dad doula. You can help support the legislation. Um, you can, you know, um, if there's a, a family member, you know, help them, let them know that you're, you're there. You can, you know, you could talk to them or they can talk to you. Um, you know, I think we just have to figure out how we include men. A lot of times as women, we just go ram, you know, we, cause we all, we all get it, right? We've got this intuition, you know, it's come on girl, we can do it. Da, da, da. And we don't think about bringing our men into that orbit with us, right? We kind of think of them kind of down the road, like we're all the way down here now. And then we got to run back. Let me, I need to, you to catch up to where I've gotten here as opposed to bringing them, you know, all along the journey. I mentioned that I talk about menopause. I do a lot of menopause work. Every every man that I know knows I do menopause. Why? Because I talk to them. And when they get to the point, you know, where they're, you know, as they've gotten older, they'll call me and go, D, I was able to have a menopause conversation with one of my friends. They couldn't believe the extent of knowledge I had. I just have to call you and tell you, thank you so much. Right. But this is what we have to do because they are engaging with us. Right. They are engaging with us. And they want to, I have rarely met a man who does not want to help his spouse or partner, um, sister or mom. I've just rarely not met a man who wanted to do that. But we have to help wanna, them. Yeah. I just want to anecdotally add in the seven years that I spent in practice um, prior to founding Luna Joy, it was really interesting to me um, the number of calls I got from husbands and partners actually to get their wives into care, the number of messages that I would get saying like, I hear you're a reproductive psychiatrist. I don't know what's going on with my wife. I just feel like something's wrong. Could you please call us so we can have a conversation? And um, really, again, they want to be involved. They're, they can sense distress. They see distress. Um, but even giving them kind of the language, the knowledge, the power, all that sort of stuff, bringing them in instead of leaving them out, I feel like that's so important. But just wanted to add that. Yeah. 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 Thanks for sharing that. That's just a prime example of what, what I was mm -hmm. talking about. They do want to help. They don't not want, they, it's not that they don't want to help. Yeah. And we even have dads who use our Ask a Doula product. It was the most wonderful surprise to launch 
a product that, you know, creates a more accessible bond with a doula. It's only $15 a month. Um, and we hoped that dads would sign up, but this was a moment when I didn't have optimism. I was like, yeah, it'll be nice to have one or two. And the, the day we launched, the majority of signups were by men. Um, so I think, yeah, what we're talking about is pervasive. And, and when we talk about how marginalized and how unequal women are, this is not a sob story for men, but when it comes to pregnancy and birth, men do feel disempowered and they are quite literally not in power. They're not holding the baby. They're not carrying the child. Bonding can be a challenge for men. I'm sure Sipra has a lot of experience with actually paternal mental health and how that can suffer. But I have always been heartened and excited by the men who engage with some of our products because when men get to text a doula their questions, they get to show up for their partner. They get to ask the questions of, of a certified doula, a professional in birth work, instead of asking the questions of Google, which is full of misinformation, or putting the burden on their, their partner or their spouse. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's so many ways that men can get involved. I love what Denise mentioned, daddy doula. There's a, a wonderful one in Wisconsin. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, there are many, many ways for men to get engaged um, through programs, through community, through fellowship, um, and certainly through working with birthing professionals and even just attending prenatal care. If, if men can do that and want to do that, their presence is is usually a constructive one and it should always, you know, be a conversation between partners. Well, ladies, this has been a tremendous conversation. Um, I was extremely interested, again, based on my clinical background uh, in obstetrics, but also uh, because at my company, Anelto, we've... Um, written a program for remote patient monitoring for uh, pregnant women um, and are trying to talk with health systems about implementing that kind of a program to break down the barriers of access to care and to do some minimal daily surveillance so that if something starts to go sideways, there is an opportunity for early intervention. Um, and so I'm hoping that our company can make a small impact on trying to reduce the mortality, similar to what all three of you are doing, um, because I would love for us to be able to get back together sometime and go, we got it. It's, it's solved kind of thing. So you can't, um, you can't not learn when you're sitting with thought leaders like yourselves in hearing the passion as well as the expertise behind uh, the information. So thank you so much for your time today. Um, and again, I hope uh, we can be together again sometime when the statistics are looking a little less dismal. Mm -hmm.